free books. We got more books. We put them on the back table. So you can go through there and uh, grab them. First come, first serve. Unless you're really kind to another person, you can hand it to them if you want, but I won't be looking. And then secondly, General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is meeting in Philadelphia this week. I will be there. It's from Wednesday to next Tuesday. So pray for safe travels. Uh, pray for the committee work and uh, overtures that are being brought to the body, any, any uh, trial matters as well. And, of course, that all things will be done in accordance to God's truth for the good of the church and for his glory. We covet your prayers. Uh, otherwise, we have the call to worship. Yeah, I won't be here Wednesday night. So you can show up on Zoom, but I won't be here. Thank you. No Bible study. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 244, 
Let us pray. We are grateful, God, that we have the revelation of your word and the power of the Spirit who has opened us and made us alive, God, open our minds and eyes to see your truth, and that your kingdom shall ever stand, God Almighty, and that we have your strength and power working through us, Lord, in spite of our weaknesses and sins, through the mercy and the blood of Christ Jesus. We are thankful for this, and we pray that it would continue to encourage us with these truths, God, and we would not lose sight of them, we pray. And we pray all these things in accordance to the prayer that you taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 50, at least part of Psalm 50, inside the bulletin. It's an insert. Psalm 50, let us read it responsively. I will read the bold-faced, and you will read the non-bold-faced. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be a very temptuous all around him. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And so we see here in part of the psalm in which he comes before the Lord, the psalmist, and acknowledges his might and power, and that God does not need the sacrifices as such. That was always understood by the holy in the Old Testament. It is not as though... Because uh, that's what the pagan gods did. Somehow you were appeasing them, you were feeding them with the blood and the flesh of dead animals on an altar. God didn't use it for that purpose. He had another reason for it. And we have a, a picture of that reason here. Uh, one Part of it, one, is for their benefit that they would offer to God a thanksgiving, something that they can do with their hands. Because we have a body, 
and part of our sanctification, uh, the instruments God has given us is that we use our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our hands, and we have the sacraments for that today, for example, in the Lord's Supper, because God comes to our level and gives us things uh, that are fitting for our situation. Of course, the other purpose of the sacrifices was to point to Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice. Let us go before our Lord and Savior on the blood and the basis of that truth. We do come before you, God Almighty, thankful for this psalm, and it's making explicit what was always there implicitly in the Old Testament through Leviticus, as we've gone through in the morning, God, and touched upon a little bit of the sacrifices last week, that you do not need these as such, God, for you are the God of heaven and earth, and you own all things in this cosmos, Lord, and all the animals. You know and understand them. You created them, Lord, and they are yours, and indeed we are yours, God. We are thankful, nevertheless, because... As our Father, you have come down to our level as a Father talking to his children and giving them childish things that is compared to you and eternity, Lord, to help us to become more like you and to praise you and to become more godly. And so, Lord, may we be humbled in your sight, brought low, God, and to recognize our position before you, which is the one of the dust and the earth. But thankful, God, that you have lifted us up through your covenants, Lord, as it mentions there in verse 5, God, that you made through Christ Jesus, that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High in spite of our sins and shortcomings. We precious God, we do nevertheless pray for our sins, acknowledge our sins, repent of them, the sins of thought, the sins of word, and the sins of deed. Lord, whatever they may be, and the violation of your Ten Commandments, God, to one degree or another, we perhaps even have... Willing ignorance. We don't want to learn more when we're called and we have opportunity to learn more of your word of Jesus Christ and our salvation. Perhaps we have spiritual laziness or whatever the case may be, God. May we acknowledge it and fight against it and keep praying for your mercy and keep praying for your strength and always trusting in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, God, for that gospel, that love, that mercy from eternity past bestowed upon us in the here and now the power of the Spirit, for, Lord, you're watching and preserving us in your providence and history, God, and bringing us to this point today that we can worship together as God's people. We pray for our church, not only providence here, Lord, for our continued growth, both numerically and spiritually, to be faithful to you and to follow your word and to love one another and to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, God, to reach out to others, Lord. We pray not only for our presbytery, for the same thing as well, Lord, that all our sister churches here in Colorado and Dakotas and Wyoming and Utah, God, would be faithful to your word, would stand firm and resist the devil and become more holy. We pray for the General Assembly, Lord, which represents the entirety of our denomination across this nation, uh, that the members therein, meeting this week into next week, God, would be faithful to your word, would be men of integrity and honor, Lord, and continue to do the right thing and vote. And even if they have disagreements, God, if they are not disagreements of what is clear and black letter of the word of God, Lord, may we be uh, have brotherly love and patience for one another, God, as we submit to one another through these decisions. We pray, God, and ask for your spirit to be upon the committees both the advisory committees that come upon us every year to review matters coming from the committees themselves and for the standing committees, God, as they deal with uh, educational purposes, Lord, that we have in the Christian ed 
And I was also home in foreign missions and diaconal and other committees, God, that deal with matters before the entirety of the body, Lord, and a pooling of our resources, both of manpower and money, God, for the good of your saints, to help them, Lord, to show the world that we take care of one another and we're desirous to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout our nation and the world as best we can. We lift up before you any overtures and judicial matters that coming before the body as well, that these would be handled with wisdom and integrity, God, and understanding the fullness of the situation before them. We also ask God for the rest that we need uh, as commissioners at the Assembly, Lord. We have a long day from 9 o'clock to 9 in the evening, and perhaps even longer when people meet together for committees and other matters to deal, uh, to talk and debate, Lord, off the floor, what would be debated on the floor the next day. And also, God, we lift up our traveling concerns, that it would, they would go well, there would be no accidents, and we would all meet together, Lord, there, and things would line up well enough, God, and that we can not have these distractions, but be able to, all the members therein at the General Assembly, and deal with the matters before them in full measure. We also pray, God, our Father above, you who love us with an everlasting love, for our work situation, you have designed us from before the fall to be men and women who are designed to work, to take care of things, to care of family, to take care of home, to take care of one another, and friends, and the church, and our businesses, Lord. We will praise you, God, for uh, those who were given pay raises, and we pray, God, that these things will continue for the rest of us, God, to have good employment, to have good bosses who understand our situation and are just and fair, Lord, and that we would also be just and fair in our situation and evaluation of ourselves if we've fallen short in our work. But at the same time, God, uh, if we have done well, that we would not poo-poo that fact, but remember that you have worked through us, Lord, and that there should be proper recompense at our job. And Lord God, we pray especially for better hours and better working conditions, Lord, that we can meet together on the Lord's Day to worship you in body and in spirit. We also pray, lastly, God, for reformation. Sometimes it's called revival, Lord. We don't mean that in an emotional sense uh, of a wisp and a firecracker and people get excited and it fades away, but rather a true reformation, Lord, a change of heart and direction in our churches to the extent that we need it because we are fallen and we struggle as churches, Lord, even our own denomination, and certainly not only the churches, God, but across this nation as well. And may it begin, Lord, in the churches that we would be faithful to your word and preach clearly both the law and the gospel as found in your word, God, and not hold back the truth, Lord, and apply it as needed with wisdom, we pray. We ask for more of your spirit, God, to be upon us. In your name alone, amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below 
sail above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We indeed magnify your name, God Almighty, this day. Thankful, Lord, for a time again to worship you. We have such freedom, Lord, and opportunity to meet together as your people, to hear your word, to sing praises before you, God Almighty, and to have the sweet fellowship of the saints, but above all, fellowship with our Lord and Savior. Bless these tithes and offerings, we ask God uh, Almighty, as only you can, we pray. Amen. As we are standing, let's go ahead and uh, sing Psalm 23a. Psalm 23a. the reading of the Ten Commandments, which is found in the green sheet of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Let us read the Ten Commandments together, the green sheet inside the Psalter Hymnal. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, the jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Let us listen attentively to God's word. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man... Nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Let us pray. With these words, you warned the Old Testament church, God, from such practices, which did occur amongst the pagans in their worship. And God, may we continue to stand firm upon your law and your word, as we see here clearly, same application today, God. It is clearly an application of the moral law that is still with us and still binding. It is not a ceremony. It is not a sacrifice. It is not tied to the land, a land promise as such, God, but rather as universal application because man and woman you created separate and distinct from before the fall. Precious God and Savior, in this day of wickedness, in this day that is topsy-turvy, in this entire month, Lord, may we be strengthened and encouraged, God, to stand firm upon what you have given us, not only 
in our conscience and in natural revelation, but in your word, that there is a holiness we are called to, God, but also a holiness that is gendered for each of us. In your name we pray, amen. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, you don't have to go there, we read, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. The phrase, quit you like men, is found in the KJV translation, and it's often translated, be brave, or act like a man. And that's because the root word has the word man in it. A few years ago, some woman wrote an essay arguing that the phrase, quit you like a man, like men, can equally be translated, act like a woman. Why would she write such an article besides the fact that this is the day and age we find ourselves in? The author specified a reason. She argued for fraternity and equality that should be the basis and ground of Christian practice and morality. Maybe she's French. I don't know. I think we all know the real reason. It's because of feminism, progressivism, and what I call more broadly egalitarianism infiltrating the churches. Besides the fact that the underlying Greek word literally has the word man, andros, in it, the other reason why her translation is flagrantly false is because men and women are just different. You don't need the Bible to know that. The underlying assumption of her essay, and of most Americans, even in the churches, I dare say, is that men and women are the same and can do the same things and think the same way, and in short, they are identical except for some plumbing. Sure, women have kids, but that means nothing outside the restricted time when a kid is born, although people are arguing even that's different now. Except, even when they're pregnant, many people try to pretend that she's still a man and want her to keep working like a man. Yet, until the last several decades, everyone, everywhere, at all times, and all places, knew and accepted that men and women were different. They adjusted their expectations accordingly, treating each group differently compared to the next, of course, depending on the circumstances, in the family, social, and political ways. All of this changed slowly yet deeply from the 60s onward in our American scene, as we all know and live through, even though the seeds were sown earlier. In spite of the prevailing egalitarianism assumptions around us, we still know that men and women are different in many profound ways. We just pretend not to talk about it. Because the powers that be, peer pressure is a real thing, as much as we think we're adults, is there. Even the progressive-minded Stanford University, certainly not a a bastion of conservatism, has to admit there's something to the age-old observation of personality and behavioral differences between men and women. In a 2017 edition of the Stanford Medicine, and on their blog as well, strong cross-ethnic and cross-national studies have shown, and shown repeatedly over the decades, that personality differences have become more pronounced, in fact, in advanced societies where men and women are free to be themselves. If you're in poverty Africa, who's going to be working? Everybody. Even the little toddler is going to be working in the fields because you're starving. If you're in prosperous West, 
the wife can stay home because the man has enough income, excuse me, used to, that she didn't have to work. Another example, courage, is a highlight of the differences between the sexes. Men exercise courage different than women. And that makes sense. If you have greater upper body strength, more muscle mass and the like, if you're in a dark alley, you have a better chance to stand against an assailant as a man than a woman. Everyone knows that. In that circumstance, the woman should flee. And she should not be embarrassed nor ridiculed for not being manly enough to stand up against the assailant. The same doesn't stand the case for the man if they're on equal terms, of course. If he has a gun, obviously you ought to run. Because we know that there are differences that are not just physical, but the physical also affects the morality, the moralism, the command to protect life, or to fight, or to run away, depending on the circumstances, depending on your ability. It's gendered. So when God calls us to be courageous to argue against the egalitarianism, to argue against the lady who wrote that article, quit ye like women, does she really believe that children of the covenant should be courageous like an adult? We know the answer to that. Children are different. We don't expect them to have that kind of courage. They can have a different kind of courage between themselves to do the right thing, to push back against the bully, if they're of equal size, for example? No. But somehow, all of a sudden, women are supposed to be like men. They don't do it for children. They shouldn't do it for women. They want to do it because they flatten everything out in the name of fraternity and equality. On the other hand, the courage that women display is different insofar as women and their circumstances are different. Almost every example she has in an essay of an inner warrior, she calls it, are female examples. It's quite amazing. <laughs> she shot herself in the foot. That doesn't change the fact that those women were courageous, but it was in a female context of the children and their family. This is just a brief summary of the sociological and practical evidences that we see all the time and know that exists. And I haven't even covered all the biological science that extends to the brains, even, of men and women. Here, in the Word of God, the sermon that we have here founded upon the Word of God, I'll leave the introduction to go into the text more carefully and to show us from the Old Testament into the New Testament as well that there is holiness and it is gendered. And what I mean by that. Gendered holiness in the Bible the ancient Near East background to the Jews here of the Canaanite religions is that they have these gods and goddesses, the goddesses in particular here, Ashtoreth, you might remember that name, the goddess of fertility and war, interestingly enough, and the, and the consort to Baal, the god of the sea and of the rain. She's also known as Ishtar or Asherah of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. They had a lot of overlapping gods. And the title 
Asherith is still used in some international organizations for homosexuals, believe it or not. Because there's a, there's a suggestion there, as a goddess of fertility and war, that she's androgynous, <laughs> both male and female. Superstitious and magical approach to maintain the fertility of the land is the emphasis there through religious procreative acts, is what I'll call it. They would induce their God to maintain fertility and prosperity in their country. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23.18, the next chapter over, it speaks of temple prostitutes, both male and female, And the male prostitutes are not just male prostitutes, but homosexual prostitutes in the service of their so-called God. Otherwise, the laws and the expectations of the ancient Near East cultures of Assyria, Babylon, everyone else around Israel is that men are men and women are women and men shouldn't be gay. But they can in the service of their God in the temple. That was the exception. So they had enough of the law written on their hearts. They knew right from wrong. They carved out an exception, which is what sin always does, doesn't it? Israel, in fact, had female statues in their homes. We have evidence of that with Tamar disguised um, in Genesis 38. In fact, Tamar was disguised as a shrine prostitute herself. In 2 Kings 23.7, it speaks of male shrine prostitutes as well in the temple. The Jewish temple. So it was obviously a problem. The peer pressure, right, of the Canaanites and the other religions around them, other cultures around them, where religion permeated the culture, unlike in America, but something still permeates something in America. It's secularism. It's still a, a view of the world and of right and wrong. And the pressure's strong back then. So God warns them here in verse 5, and there in chapter 23, verse 18, not to follow those ways of living. Not only not to follow those ways of worship, but also outside of formal public worship in the temple, don't live that way. Now here in this particular text, it speaks of, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. That phrase there, anything that pertains to a man, is a specific word there in Hebrew. It means male implements, male tools, male instruments, not just the clothing. The word, uh, one of the dictionaries says, specifically relates to a male at the height of his power. It is not a generic word for man. More specifically, the mature man in strength and might. The implements there is not only arms, as I said, it could be armor, the bag, the sacks, uh, the instruments and whatnot that he would have in armor or in his job, as the case may be. There's not a prohibition here against similar clothing between the sexes because they had similar clothing to some extent, right? They didn't wear pants. They have this um, over uh, mumu, more or less. But gender-defining clothing in specific. They had some highlights there. They had ways of wearing it. Of course, their hair and whatnot, that would specify the difference between men and women. And he calls it an abomination here. It is an abomination to the Lord our God that a woman should look like a man and the man look like a woman and dress up that way. And as an abomination, by implication, of course, he's saying you should shun it. If God 
finds it an abomination, we ought to find it an abomination and find it as a wicked thing to avoid. To confuse and to confound the God-given differences between the sexes is abhorrent to God and should be to us. We should clearly communicate with our clothing, our gender. But is God only concerned with clothing only? To paraphrase Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, is God only concerned about the ox and feeding the ox when he gives the Deuteronomic Code law? No, of course not. If it's true for the ox, how much more for the pastor, as he argues in 1 Corinthians 10, the paying of the pastor. And if it's true for clothing, how much more is it for our behavior in our heart as men and women? In other words, we are called by this law, the moral principle behind this law, which is a specific application of the broader idea, the broader truth of the differences between men and women, is that we ought to accept it and embrace it and not be ashamed of being a man or a woman. And to accept our responsibilities, not only in clothing, but in our moral calling of holiness as a man or a woman. God is not just concerned about clothing, brothers and sisters. He's concerned about the heart. Our attitude, our expectations ought to be in alignment with God's law. And so that's the commandment here in a nutshell. Uh, Both the immediate black letter words here, don't cross-dress, and the implication of that, which is at the very least that we shouldn't cross-dress in our hearts and in our actions and to be what we are called to be. The New Testament as well has this expectation of this law. Adam was created first. Remember that? That's why he leads. Eve was created second. That's why she follows. It's as simple as that, and that was before the fall. So sin has nothing to do with the distinctions and differences between men and women. Creation has everything to do with it. And in fact, Paul argues this in 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He goes straight to the creation account before the fall and says, this is how God has designed it. That it wasn't an accident, right? Wasn't an accident that God created Adam first from the earth and Eve second from his rib. It wasn't an accident that he rested wasn't an accident that he worked, and he calls us to follow that pattern, right? To work and rest, and also hear the pattern that God exercises in time and space, is that he made men, and he made women out of their ribs, and there are moral lessons and implications from that. But the order is not only significant, how they were created is significant as well. God made man out of the earth, out of the dust, and he made women from man's side. And why from his side? Because Adam needed a helper fit for him. As Matthew Henry likes to put it, he didn't make the woman out of his feet so he would trample all over her or out of his head to lead him, but to be a helpmate from his side to support him. Now, before I continue on here, I want to give a note and explanation It's the same moral law of holiness, right? We went over that in prior sermons. The Ten Commandments is the standard of holiness and the call of the Christian life by the power of the Spirit within us, we who are baptized, to follow in those steps as Jesus walked them in perfection, of course. 
It's the same moral law given to both men and women. But the exercise therein is expressed in a gendered way. We see that in the commands to be a good wife, (laughs) which is a woman position, not a man's position. A man's position is to be a father. We know this, society knows this, although society is lying, 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 and pretending otherwise. They want to mix the roles. And so it's important for us to stand firm on this truth, that holiness is real. Holiness has the same standard, but it's genderedly expressed. It's perhaps a better way of putting it, or gendered holiness, I call it. Which is to say, what is commanded for me as a man is also commanded for my wife. Neither one of us should lie. Both of us should support and stand for the truth. But I can stand for the truth through preaching. Can she stand for the truth through preaching? She can try. <laughs> she get in trouble. No, it's expressed in a womanly way, not through preaching, because that's the man's office. That's all I mean. We know this again. We don't think of it this way. But it's here in the Bible, and it's there in natural revelation or natural law, which is the next sub-point of this first point. Natural law is appealed to by Paul himself. He doesn't have to quote Deuteronomy all the time. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Not just the clothing, even the hair and the manner of way of grooming ourselves is different. It's implied by Peter, if you've not thought about this before. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we read, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Where else is she called a weaker vessel in the Bible? Nowhere else. Where did he get that? He opened his eyes and he looked. It's as simple as that. Consider this, would God make a man a body that is geared towards strength? And I commend to you my Sunday school class on that, on the gender differences and the sciences. I mean, you don't need the sciences to figure out that men are stronger. Even skinny men are stronger than the average woman. Give him greater strength. Give him a body for greater strength, but not gear his personality to use that strength as he's called to use it. Would God make a woman a body that is geared towards nurturing, but not gear her personality and her character to use that body for nurturing? I think to answer the question is to answer it. God is not a fool when he designed us, brothers and sisters. But when he designed us, he equipped us to do our task And you can see our task by how we are equipped as well. The two go together. God is a God of compassion, and he made mankind such that he equipped them to do their duty. Even after the fall, they are equipped to do their duty. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus says. God gives blessings even to the unbeliever. And part of that is they being created in the image of God, although fallen now because of sin, still retain the ability to do their calling as a man or a woman. And yet we are told implicitly or explicitly in society and unfortunately in churches that that can't be the case. 
But that reasoning stands firm. I don't have to have the Bible to have that reasoning. That's how clear it is. If you are equipped for something, that's your responsibility. If you have a responsibility, God has equipped you for it. That's how you know what your duty and calling in life is. I mean, I cannot uh, be a mechanic. I'm just not equipped to be a mechanic in terms of training, although I may have the muscle strength. You need more than that. And so I, I submit to God and say, okay, God, I'll never be a mechanic. I just do basic things. That's about it. I accept it. But I also see it without having to find a Bible verse. Can Sean be a mechanic? No, I can't because I don't have the training. It's as simple as that between the differences between men and women and the responsibilities that flow from those obvious differences. God created our bodies and our bodies are geared towards a responsibility. God did not give the roles of the sexes on a whim. He equipped them to do their roles. Women can and are courageous, to go back to the prior examples. Men can be and are nurturing, but the way they express the courage and the way they express the nurturing is in a manly and a womanly way. The way I I nurture my daughter is to tease her. How's that nurturing? Because part of nurturing is training and instructing them and having them be prepared for random events in life. And teasing is a form of random events. Men do it all the time. Fathers do it all the time. They do it to each other harshly because men expect stronger responses from other men. We won't do that harshly with the women and the daughters. Part of her growing up is not to always have security because women want that and that's a good thing, but to know things get broken up once in a while. You can't always have that security. And teasing is a way of doing that, I would argue. And it's certainly something we see in all kinds of societies. The best kind of teasing, of course. Maybe you had very bad teasing in your experience. I hope not. Being made in the image of God or remade in the image of Christ, right, being born again, does not change the biological facts and the underlining moral requirements that are attached to those biological facts. They go hand in hand. Being a born again doesn't change your, your sex, right, your gender. You're still a male and you're still a female. Gendered holiness in America, the second part where I get more application from uh, the truths of God's law, the truths of natural revelation of the natural law itself, which is the same as God's law in the Bible. The cultural changes, as we know, that have come upon us are different than the kind of cultural changes I'm talking about here. Qualitatively different. To explain more clearly that, yes, there are differences in clothing between men and women, and it has changed over the generations or over the centuries and over the millennia, right? We don't have to wear a muumuu anymore, thankfully. At least I don't. Women have dresses. That's about as close as what you have from the ancient Near East times with Moses and all them. There's no specific list of clothing items listed in God's word. Nor is there a list of foul language in the Bible, is there? But it tells you not to have foul language. Paul says that very clearly. So what does that mean for us then as conservatives who take seriously God's law? It tells us that the clothing and the language has been set up by prior generations. Who here created English? That's right. Nobody did. You were born into a society in which English had already been developed a thousand years And you speak it. And there's certain words that are curse words that you avoid. And that's good. 
So in other words, it's under the rubric of the fifth commandment, where the authority of the forefathers, the authority of those over us, tell us clothing, tell us language. Certainly, with respect to clothing, although it has changed again what we have, even up to today, we have enough common sense and practice that we see differences in our clothing, so we see differences between male and female. So a generational continuity is assumed in the fifth commandment. I talked a little bit about, about that in Sunday school class. But unfortunately today, we get many social leaders and politicians with power and influence that aren't happy with that, and they keep pushing in the name of progress to end up breaking the boundaries and creating chaos in our clothing and chaos in our language instead of maintaining those distinctions through time. So, brothers and sisters, this is where we are in America, where the boundaries are breaking, both in clothing and actions and in language, where everything, everywhere, of the gender differences is being subverted in the most obvious and derogatory ways, especially, as you know, in the case of butchering children. I don't mean abortion, butchering young ladies. Since Deuteronomy and natural law and our common sense tells us that it's not just dressing that's forbidden, it's also acting like a man and acting like a woman. The Bible tells you not to be effeminate. That's one of the prohibitions by Paul in the New Testament, by the power of the Spirit working through him. He says, don't be effeminate. It's a translation there. Don't be soft. Is he talking to women? So you hear you have this list of do's and don'ts, and you realize, oh, the list of do's and don'ts assumes a gendered response. It's the men who are called not to be soft and effeminate. And, of course, cross-dressers are now lauded and praised in the schools and in the libraries. Women in combat is another obvious example. We talk about the firemen thing, and you remember the stories from the 90s when the women went in, and I think it was New York City, and they sued for, I want equal rights, I want to be a fireman too. And they go through the whole course and whatnot, and then they eventually sue them for hiring them in the first place, because let me tell you, it takes a lot of work to be a fireman, physically, to carry bodies up and down a stair. I'd rather have a man than a woman carry me up and down through a fire. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. In the church, the danger of blurring gender roles, the danger of blurring the gender roles, there's different ways of doing that, by action, by clothing, leads to effeminate men being accepted into the leadership, which itself normalizes gayness in the church because gay men, by definition, are effeminate. You never thought about that. You're like, well, this guy's the effeminate one, this guy's less effeminate. No, they're both effeminate because it's women who like men. And if a man likes a man, that's effeminate by definition. Make sense? On the other side, that's one way, allowing celibate gay ministers in the church, which has happened especially in the mainstream churches, but no longer, unfortunately, normalizes gayness in the church and thus normalizes effeminacy and a blurring of the difference between men and women. 
right there in the leadership. Because part of the leadership is he's supposed to be an example, a godly example. It's doubly bad in the case of a minister. Similar dangers uh, arise, I believe, and has been um, going on for several decades in which uh, women are promoted like de facto teachers in the church with their books and their preaching circuits, for example, or excuse me, teaching circuits. In these dark days, brothers and sisters, we are to be a light on a hill, a shining light by God's grace. Not only for the good news, in preaching the good news, and teaching of Christ, and the call of repentance, and that there is deliverance from the sin of breaking the distinction between men and women. That we, by our good works wrought by the Spirit, can show them what it means to be a man and a woman and follow our God-given callings in life, to show the world that God is with us. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for your word and for the nature we find ourselves in and the common sense and the distinctions that we see, Lord, and have been preserved even in spite of uh, the cultural revolution we find ourselves in these last several years and even decades. We will continue to maintain such things, God, as best we can, as hard and confusing as it can be at times, God, because we have very little leadership to maintain uh, this call of yours to be different as men and women to accept our calling, our holiness, God, is gendered and distinct that way. But at the same time, it's the same law. Help us, Lord, to accept these things and to grow thereby, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 128b, 128b.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.